We're grateful, Lord, for, um, we're grateful for this day, and we're grateful for grace and for mercy. We are reminded that, uh, as, as the old uh, hymn says, we need you, we need thee every hour. And we thank you for sustaining grace. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the, the fact that we can never uh, tap out that grace, that we can never tap out your goodness like Niagara Falls, uh, it just keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. Lord, we would, uh, we would pray for ourselves tonight as men. We live in a culture where, quite frankly, men who are committed to you, men who are following you, men who are attempting to live out what they believe are not real appreciated in this culture. We're kind of throwbacks. We're, uh, we're old school. We're not real progressive uh, in the opinion of a lot of people. But you call that being salt, and you call that being light. So don't let us ever lose that. We would pray for ourselves tonight, Lord, because we're needy. We would pray for ourselves uh, as husbands, that we would not take our wives for granted. We pray, Lord, that we would maintain uh, grateful hearts for our wives. We pray that we would grow in understanding of them. We, we pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would help us with all the stuff we're dealing with personally to... Uh, to think about her and about her needs and what's going on in her life. We pray that there would not be a rift between us, but that there could be unity. And every marriage has its ups and downs and its seasons. But we pray, Lord, you'd tune us in. And we don't always do that as guys. Uh, I pray for the guys that are here who are separated from their wives. They don't want to be, but they are. We, we would pray that you might be able to reconcile marriages. That's your desire for the two who have become one to, to stay one. But that sure goes against the grain of this culture. We would pray for us as fathers. That once again, Lord, with all the responsibilities we have, and uh, we're pulled so many different ways, we're, we're trying to cover a lot of bases, and we don't mean to, but sometimes just trying to handle all those different things, uh, the family takes the, the, the place that they shouldn't be taking. So we find ourselves, as we go through life, we find ourselves having to make these corrections, these mid-course corrections. And I would pray for each of us, Lord, that we might be sensitive to your spirit that, so that we could be easily steered, so that we could be easily directed by you. Uh, we, we love our wives, we love our kids, we love our grandkids. But sometimes we get distracted and sometimes we get so on to a project or a problem 
that uh, all of our emotional energy is poured into that task. Uh, once again, Lord, we're just guys. And we don't always get it right, but, but we want to get it right. So we would ask for we would ask for wisdom, we'd ask for discernment, so that we could apply your truth in a very practical way into our lives. We want to live out our Christianity at home. We, we really do. I thank you for these guys that are, that are here tonight. Thank you that they would make room in their busy schedules. Uh, end of the day, we're all tired, kind of worn out. We pray that you would make this time significant. That's our prayer tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two guys are on a flight from Dallas to L.A. and uh, sit down and say, hey, how you doing? Get acquainted a little bit. And uh, they start talking. And one guy says to the other guy, he says, so you live in L.A.? He goes, no, actually, I, I live in Texas. I've lived in Texas all my life. But I, I'm going out here because I'm being transferred to L.A. And uh, going out there to look at housing prices, and I'm kind of dreading that because I know how high it is. And uh, so are you excited about moving to L.A.? He said, actually, I'm not. I'm kind of dreading it. I just doesn't appeal to me, L.A. You know, the smog, the traffic, and the crime. My gosh, the crime is unbelievable. I mean, the murder rate, the road rage, the violence, it's, uh, I, 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 the gangs. I, he, I, he said, I got to tell you, I'm not looking forward to this move to L.A. And the other guy says, well, you know, he said, I've lived out there all my life. And I got to tell you, I, I think the media hypes all the crime in L.A. Uh, I don't think it's worse than any other major city. Uh, I just think people get the wrong impression. The guy says, really? He goes, yeah, I think it's a great place to live. He says, well, that's great. He goes, what kind of work do you do? He says, I'm a tail gunner on a UPS truck. <laughs> we've been, uh, this fall, we have been talking about, we've been talking about events. The events of our lives and if you've been with us, you know that our perspective from the Word of God is that uh, none of the events in our lives are by accident or by chance. We believe that God has a plan and that God is working out His plan in our lives. And we've made a point throughout this study uh, that, that God works in our lives providentially. He's in the details. We've made another point that God works strangely in our lives. And we've also made the point that God oftentimes works slowly in our lives. Now, we have been camped, for lack of a better term, for, what, four or five weeks now? At, at, at one event, and it is the event that's recorded in Exodus 14. It's the event of the Red Sea, and that's where we've been. Uh, quite frankly, it has taken us longer to get through the Red Sea than it did for the two million people who comprised the nation of Israel. Um, but tonight, I want to move off the Red Sea to another event. Because there are different kinds of events 
that come into our lives and are part of our journey as we follow Christ. And one of those events, if I were just to to give it a title, would be the events of transition. Uh, Life is full of transition. Life is full of change. Now, there are certain events that are, I would call, uh, light or minor transitions. That's just the, it's just the everyday stuff of life where things change in our, in our lives. And there's a certain amount of change, and there's a certain amount of uh, change that, that we compensate for and we expect. Um, but then there's the other kind of transitional event that would be major transition. It would be moving from Dallas to L.A., It would be a change in career. It would be uh, an unexpected layoff or a firing. Uh, uh, That's a huge transition. Uh, Your wife leaving, that's a transition. That's a huge transition. It's it's an event with with major consequences. A life-threatening illness in your life or in the illness of your spouse or in the life of your spouse or in one of your kids or one of your grandkids. Those are major league events that bring transition into our lives. I I have to tell you guys something that for a number of years, I viewed myself, and, and I mean this genuinely, as I looked at myself, I viewed myself as someone that didn't have a problem with change. I'm pretty fluid, pretty much go with the flow. Um, I think for about 55 years, I was pretty much self-deceived. Because what I realized is the older I get, the more I don't like change. Because what happens in these chapters of life is that we just kind of get adapted to a chapter. And we've said this many times. You look back over your life and you see chapters, just like a book. Uh, uh, Every time you walk into a new chapter, there's transition, there's change. Just when it seems you're starting to get comfortable with a chapter, you kind of get it adjusted and you kind of get it laid out the way you want it, it's not unusual for another transition to occur in your life. And this transition, is, I find, I rarely welcome because I get comfortable. I get settled in. I kind of like my, my life the way that it is. I, when I was a young guy, I, I used to view old guys as guys that were set in their ways. What I realized is I'm set in my ways. I, I, I kind of like life. And I, I think we could all say that. We, we kind of we get it structured the way we want it, and then it's not unusual for there to be some kind of a major transition. Where I'm going tonight is the book of 1 Kings, and I'd like you to turn with me um, to that book. We're going to uh, we're gonna go to an event, several events that happened in the life of Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets. Uh, if you'd turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 16, 
we're going to look at transition through the eyes of Elijah. Now, we have to say this about Elijah. Elijah just suddenly shows up on on the biblical script. He was one of the great prophets. He was was one of the men, uh, if you remember on the event in the New Testament where Jesus, the, the transfiguration, uh, Peter's got uh, Peter. Jesus has three of his guys with him, and suddenly two men show up. You know who they were? Moses and Elijah. And Peter immediately says, Lord, let's build three tabernacles here, one to you, one to Moses. You know, Peter's always sticking his foot in it, he's always got a plan. And that wasn't the way to go. But anyway, uh, it's, it's significant that Elijah was one of the two. Many believe that in the last days, when the two witnesses show up uh, during the tribulation and, and prophesy in Jerusalem, it's going to be Moses and Elijah. So Elijah is right at the top. Great man of God, great prophet of God. We don't know a lot about Elijah's background, except we know this. He showed up on the scene when things were really, really bad. There was incredible moral darkness in Israel. Uh, The reason there was such moral darkness is because who was in charge, who was on the throne of Israel. Um, Let's read, beginning in chapter 16, with verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. If you were here a few years ago when we did our study on living lessons from dead kings, we talked about the fact that after you had Saul was the first king, then you had David, then you had Solomon. But once Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took over, uh, Rehoboam was such a poor leader and, 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 and a leader who was lacking in wisdom as much as his father had wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man. Well, Solomon raised a fool in Rehoboam. And what took David and Solomon 80 years to construct the nation and unify the nation and make it strong, in 36 hours, Rehoboam split the nation in half. So they divided into two kingdoms. Ten tribes in the north were called Israel. Two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, comprised what was known as Judah. Uh, so you got two kingdoms going on. So when we read about Ahab here in verse 29, he was king of the north in Israel. Uh, he became king in the 38th year of Asa, who was king down in Judah. Sort of like when we had the Civil War. So you got the split nation going on. Okay? And it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. Now i got to tell you something. These were 22 bad years. Because this guy was bad news. This is not the guy you wanted running the nation. And it tells us why in verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And again, if you remember anything about the Old Testament history, the kings of the north, the kings of the... Uh, of Israel. The first guy was a guy named Jeroboam. You say, Rehoboam? No, this is Jeroboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. And he's the guy that basically split the nation in two. 
And when they split the nation in two, there was a guy by the name of Jeroboam who used to work for Solomon who became king of the ten tribes in the north. So you got Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. Okay? You got, we're going to have a quiz here later, so you, you want to get this down. Just a little pressure on you. Okay? Jeroboam uh, was a bad news dude. He set up two golden calves. He instituted idolatry in Israel and the northern kingdom. And here's the thing. In the southern kingdom, as you trace all the different kings, most of them were evil, and then every once in a while you'd have a good king. But in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam set a pattern of wickedness and idolatry and evil, and every other king that followed him in the northern kingdom was an evil and wicked king. And out of all of those evil and wicked kings, Ahab was the worst. That's who we've got here. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about, verse 31, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. It wasn't a trivial thing. It was a horrific, wicked thing. That he married Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel may be the wickedest woman in history. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Now, to give you a, a picture of, of the moral darkness and the wickedness that was in the nation, so Ahab, who's against God and in rebellion to God, he winds up marrying this, this, this gal who's a Baal worshiper. Now, to us, that doesn't mean a lot. Uh, three characteristics of Baal worship. And I, I spent about six, seven hours one day down at Dallas Seminary just reading monographs on Baal worship. Because uh, we're not real up on Baal worship. Let me give you three traits of Baal worship. Just, just to show you the darkness that descended on the nation. Number one, um, Baal worshipers were um, they're pro-choice. W when I say that, here's what I mean. Uh, part of the worship involving Baal, uh, there, was, there was an idol they would call Baal Moloch. At a certain point in Israel's history, what they did on the south, I got to get this in my head, I got to see it, on the southwest side of Jerusalem, in a certain valley, which was the, the valley of the garbage dump, uh, they set up this Baal Moloch god. It was sort of like a Buddha, this big god. And what they would do when Baal worship was in vogue and was very popular, they'd have their worship festivals and all this. Well, this big brass god would sit in this position, sort of like you've seen those big Buddhas in the Orient, uh, with his hands extended like this. This is a big, massive idol. And his back was hollowed out, and so the priest would, what the priest would do is they build a fire in there and stoke it up for three or four days before they have the festival. And then they get the drums pounded, and they'd work these people up to a fever pitch. And to show your commitment to Baal, you would take your firstborn infant son and place him into the hands of that white-hot God. And that child would be, well, would die a very, very painful death. That's how you showed your allegiance. But as a parent, you had the right to choose if you wanted to do that. 
Aren't you grateful we don't live in days like that? But we do live in days like that. So uh, child killing was part of Baal worship. The second thing is that they were, uh, Baal worships were very pro-environmental. Uh, they were pro-environment. Now, we're going to see this in just a minute. Uh, Elijah's going to show up, and Elijah's going to say to Ahab and Jezebel, he's going to say, uh, it's not going to rain until Yahweh says it will rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Now, we can just gloss over that, but that was a slap in the face of Baal because they thought that Baal controlled the growing seasons, the environment. They thought Baal controlled the rain. Uh, and so they worshiped Baal, and they trusted in Baal to bring harvest and to bring rainfall. And whenever a crop came in, they would give credit to Baal. Uh, the third thing is that uh, they were pro-gay. Baal worship was all centered around the story of Baal. Baal was, um, all the stories of Baal were very sexual in nature. For instance, Baal, uh, and Jezebel's father, by the way, was named Ethbaal, which means with Baal. Uh, the Baal stories, uh, Baal castrated his own father and then killed his father. Baal had three wives who were his three sisters. So there's incest. Uh, that's about as far as we want to go. You, you, you read the stuff down in the Dallas Seminary Library, you blow the dust off these stacks and read this stuff, it'll make you sick to your stomach. It was all sexual, it was all perverse, it was just... And here's the deal. When, when they would have their worship services, they were real big on drama, and they would reenact publicly the stories of Baal, which were all sexual in nature, in, in a public arena. And there'd be kids there and everything. Um... They had three kinds of prostitutes in Baal worship. They had male prostitutes, female prostitutes, and sodomite prostitutes, because they needed all three in order to enact publicly the stories. That involved a lot of homosexuality. Oh, and if you were offended by that and raised an issue, you were accused of being hateful. Funny how that sounds familiar, doesn't it? See, nothing's really changed. Well, it's in this setting, it's in this setting that, notice verse 33. Actually, I, I skipped 32. It says of Ahab, so he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. It says in 32 that Ahab, who knew the truth about Yahweh, it says in, 30, it says in 31 that he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. He knew about the true God. It says in 33, Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Oh, by the way, it says in 34, in his days, Hiel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. Jericho is the oldest city in the world. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, Abiram his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, just a real perverse time going on. Now, now here's, here's what I want to tell you. This was a dark period. They worshipped the environment. They were pro-homosexual rights. They were, and, and, and by the way, if you had a problem with that, you were accused of being intolerant. 
I've given you the definition before that G.K. Chesterton gave of tolerance. G.K. Chesterton said tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. That's kind of an interesting view on tolerance. Uh, so this was a wicked time. In the midst of this wicked time, and this guy did more evil. And I want, and I want to say something else to you. These people were vicious, Ahab and Jezebel. They, they were vicious. They were killers. They, they believed they were above the law. Nothing would stop them. If you read on later in the text, you, you find the story of a guy named Naboth. Uh, one night, Jezebel comes in, and Ahab is in the palace, and he's all depressed and upset. She goes, what's wrong? He said, you know that beautiful vineyard that Nabob has next door? She said, yeah, well, I, I want to buy it from him, and he won't sell it to me, because he said it's his family ancestral land, and he won't sell it. And she said, well, that's not a problem. I'll get it for you. So what she did was she got some guys and paid them off, and they trumped up charges that Nabob was a blasphemer, and they had a trial, and these guys were paid off, and they said, yeah, I heard him say this, and I heard, heard him say this. And then they took Nabob out, who was a godly man, and they stoned him, and they murdered him in cold blood. And then she said, Ahab, you've got your vineyard. You didn't miss with these people. These people were bad news. Now, with that setting, watch this. You say, I thought we were talking about transitions. Well, we are talking about transitions, but you've got to get the setting. Now, watch this, 17.1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab. Now, you could just blow right by this and, just, and miss the significance of this. So there, here is this horrific king taking the nation down a godless, wicked path, and suddenly Elijah appears on the scene. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead. And that's about all we know of this guy. Suddenly, he's on the scene, he shows up, and he says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely they sh there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, there's not going to be a drop of rain until Yahweh gives me the word. And how it turned out, there wasn't going to be a drop of rain in Israel for three and a half years. In fact, you know, it's kind of turning here, the weather. Isn't it kind of nice, kind of football weather? You go outside and there's that little bit of nip in the air, you know? Just makes you want to rip somebody's helmet off, doesn't it? I mean, there's just something about that that gets in the blood. You just want to Roy Williams tackle somebody. And uh, anyway, but boy, that, and, and I came out the other morning and there was dew on the grass. You seen that at your house yet? That's a sign of fall. God's judgment was so complete on Ahab and Jezebel and their commitment to Baal who brought the rain. Elijah says, hey, listen, not only will there not be rain, there's not going to be any dew on the grass. That's how completely God is going to withdraw moisture. Because you think this false God brings moisture. No, Yahweh brings moisture. So, so when Elijah shows up, and makes this announcement, suddenly, he's public enemy number one. You guys uh, ever enjoy looking at those cartoons that Gary Larson does called The Far Side? That guy's a little bit on tilt. Very interesting guy. And some of those cartoons I never did get. But some of them are brilliant. My favorite cartoon in the Far Side series is the one of the two cows in the pasture. 
And one of the cows has got a target painted on his side. Just a big old target. And the other cow says to him, that's a heck of a birthmark. That's supposed to be funny. Um, it was a birthmark. And it's a target. Like, shoot me. Yeah, what are you guys drinking tonight, huh? It was a brick. Yeah, that's, I'm not setting you up. That's from last week. It's, this is not a setup, okay? So, when Elijah shows up and confronts Ahab and says, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, suddenly he's public enemy number one. And, and these people don't miss around. So all of a sudden, Ahab hates his guts, and Elijah is going to have to hide, and Elijah is in major transition to save his life. Now, I want to say this to you. Elijah, I believe, was in transition even before he made the pronouncement to Ahab and Jezebel. We don't know much about him. We don't know about his life. We don't know what he did. But I will say this to you. He had, not been on the, he had not been on the horizon biblically up until now, so we could surmise his life was probably fairly steady, his life was probably fairly predictable, but suddenly the Lord gave this guy a message, and to his credit, he had the guts to deliver the message. He was going to speak what the Lord said to him. Before he ever showed up there, he had to know there was going to be a major transition in his life. So he delivers the message, and suddenly his life is in danger. Now watch what happens. Verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. This is going to be your hideout. This is going to be your hiding place. Verse 4. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Now this is really wild. This guy is on the run. He's going to have to hide out for the duration of this thing. And these people are killers, and they're looking for him, and they're looking to hunt him down. So how is God going to provide for him? How is God... See, when there's transition... You know, transition is interesting, because sometimes... Sometimes you have a sense before the actual transition comes. Sometimes you have a sense in your life that transition is coming. You get that uneasy sense. You get that sense that things are changing. You get that sense that what you've been accustomed to is that something's going on. There's a change in the wind here. And, and, and you can anticipate it. And when we sense transition coming on, what... what and, and, say at work, there's been a buyout or there's a, there, there's a change in the CEO or they're making drastic cutbacks. You just sense, you know what? I wonder how long I'm going to be here. You guys know what I'm talking about. You, you can almost smell it. Now, when that happens, when we know transition's coming, you know what the human response is? The human response is concern. The human response is anxiety. The human response is we start trying to figure out, well, how's this going to work out? How's this going to sort out? 
how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? Because what we've depended on potentially is about ready to change. And that always throws us a little bit because we've gotten comfortable. Now, this is really bizarre, this transition. This one, quite frankly, this one doesn't make a lot of sense. Because here's what God says to this guy. I want you to go to Cherith. There's this brook on the other side of the Jordan River. You're going to hide out there. There's a brook there. And then what I'm going to do is, uh, I'm going to feed you by the ravens. The, the, the ravens are going to bring you, look at, verse, uh, look at verse 5. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens, this is wild. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. And bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. You remember us saying God works strangely? This is strange. And I'll give you another reason it's strange. There have been studies done on ravens. Ravens are notorious for forgetting to feed their young. Okay, now let me get this straight. I'm going to be over at this brook, and then these ravens are going to bring me food in the morning, and they're going to bring me food in the evening. Isn't it like God to pick a particular bird who of all the birds probably has the weakest maternal instinct of all the birds? In fact, the death rate of young ravens is extremely high because the ravens are so inconsistent in providing what their young need. And these are the very birds that God's going to use to take care of this guy. Would that not just bring a little anxiety? Would that not bring just a little concern? Would that not bring just a little worry? Sure it would. And then notice this, if you would. He's there, and just as he's starting to get comfortable, and he's there quite a while, something happens. Look at verse 6. Actually, verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried Why did the brook dry up? He was just getting comfortable. He was just getting used to it. He just built a little hut. He just got his... Why did the brook dry up? Well, what does the verse say? Because there was no rain in the land. The reason the brook dried up is that what he told Ahab and Jezebel was coming to fruition. There was no rain, and this little brook, which was his life support, is gone. So now he's in another transition. I want to show you something very interesting to me. Here's the thing about transition. Transition brings anxiety. If you're human, if you're normal, it brings anxiety. You got to get some worry. You, you, get, you, you get questions. Well, how are we going to do this? And how am I going to do that? And see, I had my plan and I've been comfortable with this change. With this, how is this all going to sort? How, how are we going to pull this off? How? Well, God was going to feed him by the ravens. Now, I want you to see something. I think that is fascinating. Look at verse 4. It shall be that you will drink of the brook. Now watch this. And I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. I think that's wild. Whenever we face a transition and the worry comes up because we don't know what's out there and we don't know how it's going to sort, 
and we don't know how it's going to come together. Here's what we need to know. Yeah, I, I, got, I got to mention something to you guys. I, I, had, I had someone say to me recently that... Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I've already kind of stepped in it, and I guess I'm going to step in it some more. But I should have thought about this before I brought it up. I, I had someone say to me, you know, I was coming to Wednesday night for a while, and then I, I, I quit coming. That was, that was the message. And, and why would that be? Well, it just seems like you say the same thing over and over again. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And, uh, and you know, you want to hear, when, when you get some kind of feedback like that, I mean, after I hit the guy in the mouth, <laughs> uh, lovingly, of course. Uh, but, you know, when you get feedback like that, you've got to take it before the Lord and say, is, this, is there something to this? And basically he was saying, I just hear you saying the same thing. The last couple of years you say the same thing, but you just say it in different ways, but you're saying the exact same thing. So I was thinking about this for several days. And you know what I came up with? I think the guy's absolutely right. Because I actually went back over everything I've taught the last two, two and a half years. And basically everything I've taught in here has been on the sovereignty and providence of God. Everything. And I'm not going to quit. I'm just not going to stop doing it. Now, thank you very much. i got a lot of cousins in here. It's good to have blood relatives in here, you know. Someone, two stories about C.H. Spurgeon. Don't let me forget I'm telling two, okay? Not one, but two. Uh, Spurgeon was the phenomenal preacher. Maybe the greatest preacher in the history of the church. In London in the late 1800s. Uh, he was accused of using too much humor in the pulpit. And Spurgeon said, if you knew how much I held back, you would commend me. <laughs> I love that story. The other story, and thanks for reminding me. The other story was that... Uh, he was criticized for preaching too much on the sovereignty and providence of God. And he said, I don't emphasize it half enough. And that's true. I had a conversation shortly after I got that feedback. And, and let me say this. Let me say this, guys. Uh, in, in all honesty, when you get feedback like that, you want to get defensive. And you want to say, well, that's not true. Well, you know what? It might be true. And you really got to take that and say, wait a minute, is there something to this? Am, am I just a broken record? I, I, you know what? I got to tell you, and I've told you this before. Uh, I speak so many places in a year, I can't remember what stories I tell. Where. I don't know how Chuck doesn't repeat stories. I repeat stories because I, I just don't remember. So... I know I do that. Um, but when you get feedback like that, what you want to do is get defensive. But I think what we need to do is we, we need to say, is, there, is, there, is this legitimate? Is there something to this? I need to think about that. 
It was interesting, just a couple days after I got that feedback, I had a conversation with a young guy, a young man in his 20s. And as I was talking to this guy, he, he said, you know, I'm almost a little bit hesitant to say this, but I think I'm actually growing in my faith. And I said, that's, uh, man, that's great. He goes, well, uh, I'll tell you why. He said, I, my temperament, the way I'm put together, I am a worrier. I worry and worry and worry. And I get on things and I can't let them go. And I'm always thinking ahead and I'm always thinking 10 steps ahead and I'm always thinking about what could go wrong. And he said, the reason I think I'm growing is that what's starting to happen to me, he says, you know, there's a verse somewhere that says, um, your eyes have seen me before I was made and in your book they were all written the days you had planned for me. He couldn't remember where it was. It's Psalm 139. And he said, I've been thinking about that. And you know what that means? He said, I start worrying about things because I want them to turn out a certain way. But what I'm starting to realize is that God has a plan for my life and all this worrying I do that that may not turn out the way that I think it should, even if it doesn't turn out the way that I should, that doesn't stop God's plan. That just means God has a better plan than what I can see. And my worry is going down. And I'm not as stressed out. And I said, that's great. And, it's, and you know what he was saying? It's all because I believe in the sovereign God who has a providential plan for my life. That's great. That's setting that young guy free. I wish I had gotten a grip on this earlier in my life. It would have saved me a lot of stomach acid. Right? Okay. So how did I get into that? He commanded the ravens. These ravens historically have ADD. I don't think I want to rely on ravens to show up at 6 a.m. with breakfast. I don't think I want to rely on ravens to show up again that evening. Uh, because he wasn't going to be at this brook for three days. It took a while for this brook to dry up. He was there for a while. And you know what? Those those ravens never failed to show up. You know why they never failed? Because God commanded the ravens to provide. Now here's what I pull out of that. When there's a transition in my life, I'm playing the what if game. What if that happens and what if this and how am I going to pull this together and I start worrying, I'm anxious and all that. Whatever transition you're facing, can I tell you something? Because he loves you with an everlasting love. Whatever transition it is that you're thinking about, worried about, wondering how it's going to work, he has already commanded someone or something to provide you with what you need when you need it. He has commanded. And that's why you're going to be okay in the transition. That helps me. I hope it helps you. That keeps me going. That keeps the fear down. Now, now, he just got comfortable at the brook, and now the brook has dried up. You know what? That's what happens. 
We get comfortable, and God dries up. You guys ever heard of revenue streams? Sometimes God dries up. God here dried up a literal stream. But sometimes God dries up revenue streams. And what happens when our revenue streams get dry? What happens to us? We get anxious. We, we get concerned. We, 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 we get worried. How, how am I going to do this? How, how am I? Flip over to Matthew 6. I didn't foresee this. I didn't, I didn't see this coming. Okay? Watch this now. Verse 25, Matthew 6. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried. And what reason is he saying? Well, he's just said no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and wealth. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having wealth as long as it isn't your God. And let's face it, a lot of people in our culture and a lot of people in Texas and a whole lot of people in Dallas, wealth is their God. Right? Wealth and plastic surgeons are their God. That's, that's Dallas. Okay? So you've got to figure out who you're going to serve. For this reason, 25, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yes, it is. But when we see the revenue stream drying up, we begin to wonder, how am I going to take care of this? All right, watch this. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? Boy, that's brilliant. You can't add anything to your life by worry. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field. They don't toil, nor do they spin. I say to you that not even Solomon, all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, where you, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of what faith? You of little faith. Earlier, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I got that out of sync. But somewhere in there, he says, Give us this day our... I never want to be in a place of transition where I have to say from my heart, Give me this day my daily bread and neither do you we've been given so much in this country we have so much you read news stories you watch the news you hear you know you, all this stuff well most americans are living paycheck to paycheck yeah most people in history have lived paycheck to paycheck but see, we've been spoiled. And I understand what the scripture says, that a wise man saves up for his children's children. Those are principles of biblical finance and all that. I'm not discounting that. But I'm saying most people in history don't live paycheck to paycheck. Most people in the history of the world and most people on the face of the earth today live day by day. Most people. We don't. But sometimes in a transition, things are removed and things are taken away. And the stream dries up. Why? Because he's going to show you his greatness. 
Ultimately, the problem is little faith. That's the problem. Uh, 31, don't worry then, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear for clothing, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek, what is that word? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The reason I read that is because of the next transition that's going to face Elijah. Go back to 1 Kings real quick. So the brook dries up. All right, when the brook dries up, his revenue stream is gone. Now what's he going to do? Now what's he going to do? Watch this. Then the word of the Lord came to him when the brook dried up and said, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. I haven't commanded a, a, an evangelical foundation to provide for you. I haven't, uh, uh, I haven't ordained a, a great philanthropist to provide for you. I haven't uh, ordained a great um, entrepreneur to provide for you. I have commanded a widow to provide for you. And by the way, did you see that phrase? I, here it is again. I have what? Commanded. Now let me show you what's strange in this text. What's strange in this text is that God says, arise and go to Zarephath. You say, I don't even know where Zarephath is. Well, it tells us where it is. It belongs to Sidon. You say, well, what's Sidon? Well, if you go back up to chapter 16, verse 31, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the... Sidonians. Do you know what God tells this guy to do? God says, hey, I want you to hide out from Ahab and Jezebel, these murdering Baal worshipers. So what I want you to do is, I want you to go see this widow in Zarephath. He goes, in where? In Zarephath. Yeah, but that's in Sidon. That's enemy territory. That, yeah, that's where I want you to go. That didn't make any sense. In other words, I want you to walk right in to Jezebel's home turf. You prophet of God, you prophet of Yahweh. So what does he do? Is that not a little strange? That's sort of like when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and struck him blind and and then the Lord speaks to his prophet, Ananias, and he says, I want you to go meet this guy named Saul. And Ananias says, um, you know, Lord, this, this guy Saul, what he does is, is that he kills Christians. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So what, is, what, what does Elijah do? He obeys God. Now, there's a principle for you. You might want to write that one down. <laughs> Try obeying God. That takes a lot of stress out of life. It takes a lot of bad consequences out of life. And a lot of us have lived for a long time disobeying. Why don't we try obedience? So watch what he does. 
So he arose, and he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and says, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. This guy's on the run. All the revenue stream is dried up. Uh, God sends him to this widow. And so he meets her, and he says, hey, would you get me a cup of water? And as she was going to get it, verse 12, he called to her and said, and would you please bring me a piece of bread in your hand? But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. You what? I have no bread. But only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Oh, well, that's, that's great. <laughs> now put yourself in this guy's shoes. This guy is on the run. This is high level. There's major transition going on in his life. There's got to be some concern. There's got to be anxiety. They're looking for him in every bus station. They're looking for this sucker in every airport. And he's just trying to stay alive because these people play hardball. These people don't screw around. So he walks up an enemy territory. God says, I've commanded a widow. Okay, that's fine, a widow. That's okay. I've commanded a widow to provide for you. And he gets there, and the widow has nothing by which to provide for him. Would you get me a piece of bread? I don't even, you know what? I got some flour and a little bit of oil. I'm going to make some bread so that my son and I can die because our revenue stream has died up, dried up. Has anything like this ever happened to you? If it hasn't, and you're a Christian, just wait. Because God does stuff like this. Have you ever entered into transition? thinking it was really going to work out well, and it didn't. And there was stress going into it, but it looked so good, and you were so optimistic, and then you got there, and not only do you wonder how are they going to provide, but they've got enough. Hey, they got, a, they got enough for a cheeseburger, and then they're going to die. Now watch this. Now watch this. Verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. This keeps coming up in the scriptures. What was it that Moses said to the children of Israel when the 600 chariots of Pharaoh's army are coming after him and there's no escape? He said, do not fear. You know, the Christian life, guys, is from faith to faith. The Christian life is from event to event. The, the, the Christian life is from crisis to another crisis. Now, it's not perpetual crisis, but there are seasons where God is testing our faith, as James 1 says. And, and so what he'll do, and, and life is okay, and then you're in another crisis, you're in another event. And what does this do? And it might be some kind of transition. It brings worry, it brings fear, it brings concern. And what does God say through the prophet? Do not fear. Okay, well, wait a minute. There's every reason to fear here. And let me tell you why there's reason to fear here. I got this widow, I've got, she's got not enough for a cheeseburger, and then, now watch what he does. Elijah says to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. And bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. This seems a little narcissistic, doesn't it? Is this guy a little self-centered? He says, uh, 
uh, you, we, we just got enough for one piece of bread here. He says, fine. Uh, why, don't, uh, why don't you give that to me first, and then you make one for you and your son. And then, but, but, but see, there's not enough. If I give you one, there's not enough for me and my son. Now, I want you to know what this lady did. Verse 14, he gives her a promise from God. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. In other words, I I know you just got one for a piece of bread, but I want you to make that piece of bread and give it to me first. That means there's nothing left. But if you'll do that, your little bowl of flour and your little deal of oil, it'll never dry up. You take it out, and the level doesn't drop. That's what God promises he'll do. Look at verse 15. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and and he and her household ate for many days. What did this lady do? She obeyed the word of God. You know, guys, we talk a lot about faith. And you know all these books on faith. Can I tell you what faith is? Faith is believing that God will do what he has said he will do. That's faith. That's all faith is. It's believing that God will provide. Back in Matthew 6, Jesus said, your father knows that you need all these things. I I told you guys a bunch of personal stories in this series. And um, I'm going to tell you a couple more as I close. When, When I left pastoring, and I was coming, we moved down here and we were going to start this ministry and I wasn't even focused on men yet. But God was leading us. And I, if you were here, I told you the story about how God did an insurance settlement and it got us through for a number of months. But then we moved down here and I'm going to do this conference thing. And I was talking to some friends and they said, well, you know, you, you got to get, uh, I mean, th- that's going to take a while for that to come in. You, you, you need to get a financial support base. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, that's, you know, you've got to raise some support for what you're going to do. And I talked to some guys that were different ministries, like Campus Crusade guys. And, and a lot of these guys, it'd take them two, three years to raise their money. And I thought, my, and they talked to two, they'd have 100, 150, 200 people on their support team. And I thought, my gosh, I've never raised a dime in my life. And I'd never, I'd never raised, I'd never had to raise any money. And so I'm in a little bit of crisis because I'm thinking, how are we going to do this? And, and I was looking at it, and I talked to some guys, and I thought, well, here's, and I, and I just laid it out before the Lord. I said, well, Lord, this is a new venture, but if I basically take what I made in salary at the church, maybe I could find a support team. But I don't know 100 people. I don't know 150 people. You know, and one morning I, I, just, I said, Lord, maybe I could get 10 guys to each take a share of that. I don't even know. I don't, and, and I'll never forget I'd never, ever had to raise a dime in my life. I called a couple guys to have lunch with them. And the first guy I was going to meet with was at a steak and ale. And I, and I got to tell you something. I had a knot in my gut in the parking lot. I was in a cold sweat before I ever walked in there. Uh, this guy's going to think I'm out of my mind. Anyway, I sit down and have lunch with a guy. And I tell him what I'm thinking about doing and focusing on these conferences. And I'd just done this. And he listened to me. 
I remember the guy saying, so you want to divide it up into 10 shares? And I said, yeah. He said, I'll do two. I said, what? He said, I'll do two. He said, by the way, you're not asking for enough. I said, what do you mean? He says, you're going to need a secretary. Well, I, I said, I don't need one yet. He said, you're going to need one. But I'll take two shares. I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe it that God came through in his promise. I mean, I cannot tell you the, the anxiety that was in my gut. The, the next day, I had another appointment with a guy. And I'm telling him what I'm doing and all that. And he'd been in a small group I'd done. And he says, he says so you're doing, you're doing this in 10 shares? And I said, yeah. He said, I'll take two. I said, okay. That's really good. Oh, and by the way, they both wrote checks. Uh, I had another lunch. It was either the next day or the following day. Guess how many shares that guy took? I know, guys, it took them a year, year and a half to raise their support base. I had it done in three weeks by the goodness of God. Now, I didn't know what I was doing, and what the first guy told me was right because we got down here and we started, and I need to hire a part-time secretary. So I'd underestimated what we needed. And so we'd been down here several months, and I got to the end of the month, and I was 1,500 short of drawing a check. And I was sweating it. I mean, I was sweating it. You ever sweated that? I mean, I'm 1,500 short. I'll never forget that as long as I live. I walked out to that mailbox in Coppell, and I grabbed the mail, and you know, there's bills and all this, and there were two letters in there. I opened one letter. There was a note from someone who was in a church I used to pass. Hey, Steve, not to know we heard what you're doing. And there was a check in there for $500. I thought, wow. I opened the other letter, and there's another note from someone who said, hey, we heard what you're doing. That's really great. Just wanted to make a donation. How much was that check for? $1,000 on the nose. Now, why did I tell you that story? It was a big transition. I was scared to death. But once again, guys, if we're never scared to death, if we're never in a crisis, we never see how God, watch this, has commanded has commanded providentially to take care of us and our needs in his way and his time. And once again, and yes, I'm saying the same thing over for six straight weeks. Once again, when God does that, who gets the glory? God does. We never want to be in those situations. But they're sweet. And they show us the faithfulness of a God who commands that we be taken care of in his way and in his time. He's got your transition covered. So let's bow. Thank you, Lord. Lord, help us to trust. Help us to trust. Help us to be like this little widow lady who did what was crazy by the world standard. She believed the promise. And you came through in your word. 
you have never broken your word. Comfort us and encourage us. And for the guys facing transition and a revenue stream has dried up, would you assure them tonight that you're going to raise another revenue stream? You know exactly where they are. Your eye is upon them, and you'll make a way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.